Genesis 17, 15, 17, 15 to 27. Isaac, not Ishmael. Genesis 17, 15. Isaac, not Ishmael. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, with, uh, with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, as God had said to him. Now Abraham was nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised, and Ishmael his son. And all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Firstly, in verses 15 to 21, it is established that Sarah is going to bear a son, and this son will be the son of promise, the son who will inherit eternal life and also be an ancestor of Jesus Christ. It's in 15 to 21. And also, a distinction is made between Isaac and Ishmael. God chooses Isaac, and he rejects Ishmael. Firstly, in 15... Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. There, um, a name change is made. It is uncertain what Sarah's original name was, the meaning of the name. We know what it is, Sarai, but not the meaning of it. That's uncertain. However, her new name, Sarah, we do know what that means, and it means princess. It means princess, why? Because she will be the mother of kings of peoples, according to verse 16. Mother of kings of peoples. Now, and, and she will bear a son. We'll speak of the son. But in terms of the kings of peoples mentioned here, remember it said in 17.6, kings shall come forth from you, right. from Abraham. And it says the same with Sarah. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Of course we know that this is true in the physical sense. They had literal descendants who became kings. But not all of their descendants became kings. However, in the spiritual way, all of the spiritual descendants of Abraham and Sarah, they are kings. All of the spiritual descendants of Abraham and Sarah. They are kings. And this is what it says in 
Revelation 5. Actually, we'll read 1, 6, and then 5, 9, and 10, and also 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. Revelation 1, 6. And he had made up, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It says we are a kingdom, and then it says we are priests to his God and Father. Also, Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, the new song is a song of redemption. A new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And they will reign upon the earth. We will reign upon the earth forever and ever. As kings, we will reign on the earth. And then 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, right. a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is in this way that Abraham and Sarah become the ancestors of kings, kings and, and, and priests, a royal priesthood to God. Now, we do have to also note that Sarah was a woman of faith. She was a woman of faith. And so this mention of her being the, having a son and having a son named Isaac and kings coming from her, peoples coming from her, is very important to note that she becomes a model of faith too. Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. She's a woman of faith too. That's how she received ability to conceive, to conceive Isaac. Because she considered him faithful who had promised. Furthermore, 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, in showing us models of, of women of faith, it says in 1 Peter 3, 5. 3, 5. And six. First Peter three five. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. The holy women of old did the same thing. They lived a modest life. And they submitted to their husbands. They lived a godly life and obeyed their husbands. Verse 6. A specific example. There's plural of women in verse 5. But the specific example is Sarah 
in 6. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children. You females among the people of God. You have become her children, her daughters, spiritually speaking, if you behave and believe like Abraham, like Sarah did to Abraham, without being frightened by any fear. Sarah did not fear, and these, the women of today, we sh that they should not fear as well. Now, back to Genesis 17. 17, 17, 16 says that I will give you a son by her. I will give you a son by her. This means that Abraham and Sarah must come together as husband and wife, and they must come together and believe that this miracle will occur. It shows that Abraham had faith and Sarah had faith because we do know the miracle occurred later in chapter 21. Now, when Abraham hears this promise that it's not his descendant Ishmael through Hagar who will be saved and an ancestor of Christ, but it will be Isaac who will be chosen, saved, and an ancestor of Christ through Sarah, also an ancestor of Christ. What does he do? Verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. <clears throat> he fell on his face just as he did in verse 3. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. He fell on his face again. That is meant to tell us, it's meant to, to teach us that when he fell on his face and laughed, he did not laugh in scorn and unbelief. He laughed in joy. He laughed in faith. That's the kind of laughter he had. Because he fell on his face. He laughed with faith. He laughed with joy. He knew that God who makes promises and fulfills his promises, as has happened to Abraham thus far in his life, that he was going to do this miraculous deed in his life and fulfill it. So he laughed in faith, not in unbelief. He was not scorning and mocking God by this laughter. Turn with me to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Romans 4, 18 to 22. Romans 4, 18 to 22. The apostle will teach us this very truth. Romans 4, 18. In hope, against hope, he believed. In order that he might become a father of many nations... According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God being fully assured that what he had pr promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul the Apostle makes it absolutely clear. Yeah. And he's not talking about just Abraham's early life. 
And he's not talking about just one part of Abraham's life. He's talking about his life of faith from the beginning of the promises to the end of the promises to the end of his life when he believed in those promises. <coughs> we know this because it says in 18, in hope against hope, he believed with the purpose that he might become the father of many nations. We know that this was already announced in Genesis 12, verse 3. Yeah. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's when he was in Ur, before he settled in Haran, according to Acts chapter 7, 1 to 4, Stephen says that that revelation that he would, that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed was given to him in Ur of the Chaldeans, before he went to Haran, which was before he went to Canaan. So this promise he had initially quite early at the time of his conversion or right after his conversion, Abraham knew that. So it says, in hope against hope. That's what he believed. So shall your descendants be. Genesis 15, verse 5. And actually... Genesis 17, verse 5, is quoted in Romans 4, 17. A father of many nations have I made you. So our passage is also quoted. Genesis 12 is already assumed. Genesis 15 was quoted here. And now Genesis 17 is also quoted here. In all of the sequence. Then we also know it mentions that he was 100 years old. About 100 years old. Which takes place in Genesis 21. Genesis 21. So from Genesis 12 to 21, these are minimally all the passages Paul the Apostle has in mind about the faith of Abraham. Therefore, that's why we have to take his laughter in Genesis 17, 17, not to be a laughter of unbelief, both because he fell on his face, but also because of what the Apostle says right here. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. It wasn't as though he had periods of faith, and then periods, long periods of unbelief. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. He believed all of that. So therefore, back to Genesis 17. He is amazed, and in his amazement, he says in his heart, he says it inside, yeah. he thinks it. Will a child be born to a man 100 years old, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He is so amazed that the, this is what God is promising. But he also knows that he has another son. And Abraham, possessing the image of God and possessing a conscience, and now possessing a clear conscience, a clean conscience, a good conscience, since he's been forgiven of sin. Right. In this conscience, he has some concern for his son, Ishmael. It's in that way that he is expressing concern and love toward his physical son, 
Ishmael. This is why he says in 1718, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. May there be some promise, something good that you give to him. I understand what you're saying about Sarah and me and Isaac. I understand that. But I want you to do something good for Ishmael. And this is what God promises. Verse 19. Not that he's going to get anything spiritual. 19. But God said, no, not anything spiritual. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. I'm not going to give Ishmael anything spiritual. That spiritual eternal life, that the spiritual promises, him being an ancestor of Christ, that's going to be Isaac. And the name Isaac means he laughs. He laughs. Because Abraham laughed in faith, in the thought that he would have Isaac at the age of 100. And it's going to be Isaac who will have this eternal covenant, this everlasting covenant, and his descendants after him who also are sons of promise. They are the ones who are going to receive eternal life and have the spiritual promises. However, verse 20, And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. However, because Ishmael is Abraham's descendant, God will also bless Ishmael, he says. And he will bless him with descendants. He will bless him with nationhood. He will bless him with this. Genesis 25, 25, 12 to 18 lists the genealogy of Ishmael. Genesis 25, 12 to 18. And specifically in verse 16, we have mention of the 12 princes prophesied of in Genesis 17, 20. Genesis 17, 20 is fulfilled in 25, 16. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Twelve princes are, are just named there, and then it says it in summary, twelve princes according to their tribes. They end up being, uh, this promises, uh, the promise of God to Abraham, to Ishmael, is fulfilled in 25, chapter 25. So he is blessed physically. This will remind us of a truth. It reminds us of a truth commonly known as common grace. Common grace. Common grace means that God's grace is given, is endowed to all people regardless of faith in Christ. And that grace, it may have some spiritual components to it, but not redemptive components. That is, they're not saved. They will never be saved. There's no intention to save them. They are not saved. And it also has physical components, physical aspects. God's common grace gives people the benefit of the sun and of the rain. God's common grace gives them food and clothing. 
It gives them marriage and family. It gives them occupations. God's common grace gives them those physical things. But God's common grace will also give some of the wicked, some of the unbelievers who never will believe, there's no intention of them believing, it will also give them some spiritual benefits. Access to the Word of God, access to the Spirit of God, but no salvation of God. That's what common grace has or entails. Proof. How, does, how do we know that it entails these things? Firstly, let's go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. <clears throat> Psalm 73. Remember here that the prophet, he is discouraged because he sees his plight and he sees the prosperity of the wicked. He sees his own plight compared to the prosperity of the wicked. The physical prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's true, and he confesses that. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost had slipped, had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eye bulges from fatness, their imag the imaginations of their heart run riot, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high, they have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. So they basically they are fat and happy people, and they mock the people of God, and they even disdain God himself. They blaspheme God himself. This is who they are. Now why are they prospering like this? Why is their mouth not shut? Why don't they receive instant death? Why is it that they actually have no pains in their death? They live a long life and die a natural death. Why is it that many wicked people have these experiences? These are physical things. But why is it that God gives them these graces, these blessings? Look at verse 18, 73, 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He says here, destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream that's here and then gone. It vanishes suddenly. Who is he, or what is he describing? He, he is describing the wicked, but he is describing the fact that on the day of judgment, their judgment will be instant. It will be instantaneous, and there's no escape. Suddenly, they're going to be no more. Suddenly, they will be destroyed. Psalm 92. Psalm 92, verse 5. Psalm 92, 5. 92.5 How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. 
that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. God has great works. He has very deep thoughts. And we think we are wise, but actually we are senseless and stupid if we do not understand this very truth he's about to tell us. This, the wise man will understand that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. God will destroy all of his enemies. They will perish and they will be scattered forever. That's what a wise man understands. That the flourishing of the wicked, the prosperity of the wicked is temporary and God uses it to destroy them forever. That is, on the day of judgment, he's going to say, I gave you all this and you spited me. You spit at me. You persecuted the people of God and you profaned the name of God. This is what you did on the day of judgment. And they will deserve whatever they get. Look with me also at Romans 9, Romans 9, 17. Romans 9, 17. Why did God raise up Pharaoh, a mighty king, king of the land of, of Egypt? And he was so powerful that Moses had to ask for his permission, Pharaoh's permission for the release of the people. Okay? He was that powerful. It could not happen just like that. It had to happen by the will of Pharaoh. But he became strong. He became wealthy and mighty. He had a vast army. How and why? Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate God's power in Pharaoh, to show that God's power is greater than Pharaoh's. Yeah. And also for God's name to be proclaimed throughout the earth. When God's name is proclaimed, then others hear of the name of God, and if they repent, there's salvation. If they refuse repentance, then there is judgment. God's name is proclaimed, and it was proclaimed in the case of Pharaoh's destruction. Because we do know in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Joshua chapter 2, the name of God was proclaimed in Jericho when the destruction of Pharaoh occurred, and Rahab repented because of that. So there was some good that happened in God raising up Pharaoh, giving him mighty power and wealth, and then destroying him so that God's name is proclaimed and, and Rahab is saved. But also in Joshua chapter 9, the kings of Canaan, they also hear, but they don't repent. Right. And they don't, they don't repent, and then they're destroyed by Joshua. So God's name is proclaimed, which has two consequences, either redemption or retribution. This is what's happening with Ishmael too. God blesses him, but he does not save him. How do we know specifically that Ishmael is an example of wickedness or reprobation or unbelief or of lostness forever and ever without any salvation. Romans 9 again. Romans 9 verse 6. 
Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Not the children of the flesh. It's not through natural generation that you become a child of God. It has to be if you are a child of the promise. Then you will become a child of God. And who is the child of promise in this context? It's Isaac in rejection of Ishmael. Because he says, children of God, children of the promise, (coughs) not children of the flesh. Not just because, verse 7, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. He only had two descendants, Ishmael and Isaac. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Your spiritual descendants will be named. That's a, that's a proof that Ishmael was not saved. He was, he was always a reprobate, always an unbeliever. Then 17, Genesis 17, 21, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Here is a clear reiteration of the fact that Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac and it'll be next year. In due course, it will happen. And verse 22, And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Now, God, we know Christ, appeared to Abraham, and then he goes up from Abraham. Now, when God departs, notice this, God was physically present announcing this oracle to Abraham. Correct? So, it would have been good or, yeah, it would have been good for Abraham to obey it then and there. But God did not give Abraham an opportunity to obey it then and there. That is, to practice circumcision then and there. That would have been an easy way to do it. God's there, God told me to do it, so now let me go do it. But God departed from him, and now what happens to Abraham? He does not have the physical help His eyesight, he does not have his eyesight to help him. God went away, and now, without seeing God or Christ right there, he needs to obey. He needs to obey when God is not physically present. Notice this. He believes in the omniscience of God. He believes in the omnipresence of God, and also the omnipotence of God, We know that from verse 1, I am God Almighty. We know that he believes in all of these attributes of God. So Abraham is about to obey God, even though God is unseen and invisible and not physically present. And notice what he does. 23, then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. In the very same day. 
This shows that Abraham, the moment he heard the word of God, he had a desire immediately to obey the word of God. He didn't say, well, that's inconvenient. I'll wait for tomorrow. Well, let me think about it some more and wait another week. Let me wait for my circumstances to change in six months or next year or in 10 years. Let me wait and then I'll obey God. He didn't do that. He obeyed the very same day. This very same day. He obeyed immediately. This is the way of faith. Faith, faith doesn't hem and haw. Faith doesn't beat around the bush. Faith doesn't say, God, give me time. We must obey immediately like Abraham did. Furthermore, 24 says, Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now tell me, which... And Abraham lived to be 175 years old. Abraham believed at least when he was 75 years old. It was earlier than that, but we know biblically it was at least at age 75. And then he lived to be 175. This commandment was given to him when he was 99. Tell me, which one among us, if God were to tell you, and there's no doubt God speaking to you, if God were to tell you to do this at age 99, would you do it? There's no need to answer. The question is, would you do it? This takes amazing faith and amazing obedience. The grace of God working in him for him to be willing to do this at age 99. Not only at age 99 for him, but he had Ishmael, verse 25, his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael too. A 99-year-old man and a 13-year-old son. We don't know if Ishmael did this willingly or unwillingly. We don't even know if the men of his household did it willingly or unwillingly. We just know that they all did it. It all happened to all of them. It is very likely the case that Abraham was such a man of God, so respected in his household, that all of these people did it willingly, even though certainly in the case of Ishmael, but even though others likely were unbelievers because he had hundreds of people in his household. He had 318 trained men trained for warfare in Genesis 14 in, and verse 14, 14, 14. He had 318 trained men. So it's likely he had hundreds of people in his household, in his caravan, going from place to place. So all of them respected him enough to do this. Because if they didn't respect him, certainly 10, 15, 20 of them could have revolted, revolted in such a way that they refused to do it. But that, that, that did not happen. God had so given Abraham favor in their eyes that they followed Abraham to do this. And verse 26, in the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. One believer and one unbeliever were circumcised the same day. One believer and one unbeliever. 27, and all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now, a question might arise it keeps mentioning the men and the males, the men and the males of the household. And 
Why is that the case? A question has been, was raised earlier as to why this is the case. And the answer that I gave is that this signifies, uh, signifies male headship. It's one way of emphasizing and signifying male headship in the family. We see in Genesis 18, 19, God also says to Abraham and speaks of Abraham in 18, 19, For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Abraham is responsible to teach his household according to that verse. Adam was also responsible for teaching his household because before Eve was created in Genesis 2, in 2, 15 to 17, before Eve was created, it says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Adam was given this commandment, according to verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. Eve wasn't there. Or even if she was there, the command wasn't given to her directly. It was given to the man directly. And the man was supposed to teach his wife. The husband to teach his wife. This is a biblical pattern that continues even into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Christ submits to the Father. All, every man submits to Christ, and then every woman submits to the man. This is the order given. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 2.11. 1 Timothy 2.11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And two reasons are now given. Why is it that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man but remain quiet and instead be quiet and receive this instruction submissively, obediently? Two reasons. The first reason is verse 13. 1 Timothy 2.13 For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. The order of creation. We know that to be the case from Genesis chapter 2. Adam was first created, and then a commandment was given to him, and then Eve was created. Adam was first created, and then Eve. Without any sin in the world, that was the order. Verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. The second reason is how sin came into the world. It came into the world by deception, and Adam wasn't deceived. The woman was quite deceived, and because of the deception to which the woman was susceptible by the serpent who was Satan, because of that, 
That's the second reason. She should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And now you might say, well, Paul is misunderstanding and he is maligning Eve. No, no. Genesis 3.13, Eve actually said to God, Eve the woman actually said to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She admits it. She knows that that's the case in her situation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.